We're not going to spend some time looking at the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible, open it up. We are continuing a series we've called Fasting and Feasting. Fasting and Feasting, we're in Leviticus chapter 23 that focuses on the biblical fasts of the Old Testament, or the biblical feasts, I should say. During this Lent season and preparing for Easter, we've got this little prayer guide we've been giving out in the back of the room. We're encouraging people to experiment with gospel-centered fasting. That's going without little blessings you would normally enjoy just for a temporary period of time to recognize bodily the ache and the longing that you have for Jesus. We, we live in a broken world. We're, we're not with him face-to-face. We miss him. Jesus says, my disciples will fast when I'm away. Uh, and so fasting is the discipline of saying, you know what, I'm going to maybe skip this thing for a little while to just kind of sit in the ache and recognize my need for Jesus, spend more time in prayer with him. Uh, and what we said is as we did that, traditionally, uh, the fasting that goes on during the Lenten season is broken on Sundays for feasting, for celebrating. And so we've been looking at a different biblical feast each week. This week, we're looking at the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. So we'll be in Leviticus chapter 23. It'll be verses 26. i going to put the glasses back on. Verses 26 through 32, the Day of of atonement. It can be found on page 101 in the Black Bibles. Um, atonement actually is one of these things that has the, the meaning of the word built into it. You can see it at one mint. It's not just a made-up thing that preachers say. It's actually in the origin of the English word at one mint. This is how we can be at one with God again. Here's the deal. We all feel the ache and the brokenness of the world. We know that we don't live in paradise. We know that we're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. We know that we're not with God and that things are broken. Some of that's the bad stuff that people have done to us. Some of that's the bad stuff we have done to other people. And we need a way to get back and be one with God again. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God makes a way. God comes to us. He says, this is how we will be one again. And that's what the atonement day is all about. There are many other sacrifices that we've looked at. Many other things we'll see in the New Testament as well. Uh, I was studying this through a lot of the ministry of Tim Mackey, who's the guy that founded the Bible Project. Anybody heard of the Bible Project? This ministry does a lot of videos and stuff. He's got a lot of great stuff as a Hebrew scholar on atonement. So I encourage you to check out their podcast and their other stuff. Podcast just has hours and hours of more material on this, but one of the words that he said was helpful to understand this is the word cover. The word cover. Uh, many translations of the Hebrew would use the word cover, a covering for sin. Um, the lid over the Ark of the Covenant is called the, the mercy seat or the atonement cover. So there's this idea that God covers over the problem for us. And he says this word in English is helpful because we use it in the two ways that atonement is used in the Old and New Testament. Because there's two ways. It's not just a covering over, but it's also a payment that's made. So has this ever happened to you? You've gone to lunch with a friend and you realize like, oh no, I forgot my wallet. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe just me. I do that sometimes on purpose. No, not really. <laughs> you show up and you're, you're so embarrassed, right? I don't, I don't have money. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can, can you pay? Can you cover me? Have you ever said that? I got it covered. Don't worry about it. And, and Mackie points out that we use that word in English to mean literally covering over something, right? Like there's a hole in the wall, we got to cover up that hole, right? Or a payment that is due. Atonement in the Old Testament carries both of those meanings. You want to cover over this pollution? 
this defilement, this impurity, this grossness, this nastiness, right? Book of Leviticus, it's all about lots of nastiness that needs to be covered over. But it's also a payment that's made. We owe something. We're in debt. And God makes a way to make that payment. So let's read Leviticus 23, verses 26 through 32. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, a holy gathering. And you shall afflict yourselves. That word can also be translated as humble. You should humble yourselves, afflict yourselves, and present a food offering to the Lord. Verse 28 says, And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves or humble yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. This is God's word to us. This is his plan to memorialize our need for atonement, our separation, and yet God draws near and says, come into my presence. We're going to make a yearly festival, which is ironically the only feast, which is actually a fast. Afflict yourselves. Sounds like we're beating ourselves up. It really means to deny yourself, to humble yourself, and often In the Old Testament, it's translated as fast, to go without, to say, you know what? I'm not going to use my normal means to make things better. I'm really sad. I think I'll eat a snack. No, on the fasting day, I'm not going to have that snack. I'm just going to sit in the sadness. I'm going to recognize my need. That God has given me lots of good gifts that make me feel better, but there's only one thing that can return me to his presence, and that's the work that God does himself. And so let me pray that God would help us to see that, to sense that in the text. We're going to see it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, but we need a spirit for us to hear him. So so let me pray for our time. God, we ask that you would teach us today. We ask that you would uh, uncover the truth of your word, that you would help our hearts to receive it. God, we confess the cultural distance, the weirdness as we read the Old Testament. It seems strange. It seems bizarre to us, especially this book, Leviticus. It seems so far away. And yet, as we sit in and as we study it, we see these mysteries being unpacked of a God who is drawing near to us, even in our defilement, even in our pollution. You come close to us. We thank you for that. We pray that your spirit would make us aware of your presence, your truth, your good news in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So the Day of Atonement is, again, big picture, at one month. That's the English word. As I said, the Hebrew word, Mackie says it could be kind of covered is a good translation for that. If you ever heard of the word Yom Kippur, that's what a lot of times you'll see on the calendars. Yom Kippur is the, the day of atonement. So it's Kippur. Another form of that is uh, kafir. Uh, it's like the verb and the noun forms of that. Um, and so this Hebrew word has a sense of both covering over something, but also the sense of making a payment for something. And we see that in the New Testament as well. Jesus covers our shame. Jesus also pays for our sin. 
We see the same thing in the New Testament. So as we look forward and we see what is taking place in the Old Testament and how that is uh, being unpacked in the New Testament, we're going to see three things. So number one, we're going to see the gravity of atonement, the gravity atonement. Uh, Number two, we're going to see the fulfillment of atonement. And number three, we'll see the origin of atonement. So we'll start in the Old Testament and then we'll go to a couple of New Testament passages um, Leviticus is a, is a hard book, but we're going to spend a little more time in Leviticus. We're going to look at another chapter that gives more details and see the gravity of atonement in Leviticus. Then we're going to skip ahead to the end of our Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 9, to see the fulfillment of it in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this atonement ritual from the Old Testament. And then finally, we'll see the origin. What's the origin of atonement? We'll see that in 1 John chapter 4. So number one, the gravity of of atonement. The gravity of atonement, we see this as we flip over to Leviticus chapter 16. If you'll flip over just a few pages to Leviticus chapter 16, we see all the details of the day of atonement. Uh, Number one, I want us to recognize before we read the text that part of why Leviticus is so hard for modern people to read is because it's culturally distant, and we say that a lot, But another reason it's hard to read is because it's gross, okay? Can I get an amen? The book of Leviticus is gross, and that's on purpose. It's gross. It's pointing out the gross things in life, and it's saying, recognize that there's gross stuff in life that reveals to us and reminds us that death is creeping in from all sides, that we're outside of paradise, that the world is broken, And we just need to be constantly reminded of this. And so the Old Testament gives us gracious reminders that life is gross. And God's like, hey, use all the gross things in life to remind you of your need of me. So even the gross things in life in the book of Leviticus can be a reminder of our need to have the pollution of the world cleaned up, to have our impurity taken away, uh, to have our personal sin atoned for, covered and paid for, but also to have corporate sin. You know, there's Sins that we do individually, there's sins that we do as a team, as a group together. And God says, I'm going to make atonement for all those things. Now, the book of Leviticus is the middle book of God's foundational five books of the Old Testament. So we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books are often referred to as the Pentateuch, which is, Penta is five, the five books of Moses, okay? So we've got these foundational five books of Moses, the beginning of our uh, Old Testament, the law, all these foundational stories. And the center book of those five is Leviticus. Now, the center of the book of Leviticus is chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. And so this is the center of the center of the foundation of our Bible. So it's pretty important. Gravity, weightiness, this is important. We recognize our own need. The world is gross. I'm gross. You're gross. We're all gross, right? We need God to fix that grossness. There's a gravity, a gravity to that, a weightiness, a like, ah, oh, this is important, but also in a literary sense. It's like, yeah, this is the middle of the middle of the foundation of, of the Bible. So let's read chapter 16. We're going to see some of the details of the Day of Atonement, and it's going to be ritual cleansing through the blood of animals. Again, culturally distant, strange for us. We're going to try to enter into this other culture. I'm going to ask you if you're kind of a modern snobby person to try to be open-minded, Okay. So all of you modern snobby people, try to be open-minded, and let's try to enter into the world of this other culture. So chapter 16, I'm going to pick it up at verse 15. Verse 15, some sacrifices have already been made, some details have already been given. 
Verse 15, it's talking about the priest. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. So he's already sacrificed a bull, he sacrificed a goat. There's all kinds of animal sacrifices being made and the blood is being used to cleanse the temple and cleanse the people. These are symbols here. Hebrews will tell us later, it's not actually cleansing anybody. These are symbols. This is God giving promises. God writing checks that he's going to sign later. He's saying, I'm going to cleanse you. Trust me, I'm going to cleanse you. So through these symbols of cleansing, it says inside the veil, what he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat, that's the atonement cover of the ark, God's law, his presence, his throne represented there in the inner sanctum, the holy of holies there in the temple slash tabernacle tent. And so in this place that represented God's presence, he'd sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed goat. Verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the tent of meeting, as well as this tent of worship, the tabernacle, later became the permanent temple. He's cleansing the places where they meet with God, as well as doing these sacrifices to cleanse the people of their sin, as well as the priests went through all sorts of rituals to cleanse themselves. He's like, everything needs to be cleaned up. Like, none of you are clean. Nothing around here is clean, right? That's what God is trying to teach us. He's saying, we all, we all need cleansing. Verse 17, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it, the altar, and shall take some of the blood of the bull, some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar, the corners, all around. Verse 19, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with this finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Consecrate, again, is cleansing, purifying. Another word we would use for consecrate is sanctify, to make holy, to make it right. We pollute things with our sin, with our brokenness, and God says, I'm, I'm going to cleanse it for you. Verse 20, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall then present the live goat. The live goat, okay. We'll back up a little bit. I'll tell the story to you because I skipped verses 1 through 15. I know you'll go back and read the rest of Leviticus this week on your own, but I'm going to summarize the story for you, okay? There were two goats. How does the Day of Atonement work? I mean, in addition to all the other animals that were sacrificed, it's centered around two goats. One goat was kept alive. One goat was killed. One goat had the sins of the people symbolically placed on its head alive, and it was sent out into the wilderness, expelled. One goat was killed, and its blood, which represents life, you might even say represents resurrection, was brought into the holy place to cleanse the people and cleanse the place. So we've got these double symbols of salvation, these double symbols of atonement with God. One is sin being sent out, and one is life power coming in to the presence of God. I hope you see the parallels. We'll, we'll unpack that some more. There, there are more parallels to be seen, but let's focus in on the text here. So he says, when he's made an end, then he shall present the live goat. We're in verse 21. So Leviticus 16, 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat 
and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. There's a guy ready, ready, standing by to take the goat and run him out of town, okay? And so he's going to send him out. He's expelled. Verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities, all their sins on itself to a remote area. He shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. Little side note, he's wearing linen uh, because you're students of the Old Testament. You probably know he usually wore a really fancy blue costume, okay? The priests would wear jewels, blues, just incredible, gorgeous uh, priest suit, right? But on the Day of Atonement, the day where you're recognizing, man, nothing I can do can make me one with God. I'm going to fast. I'm going to afflict. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to come empty. On that day, the priest would go in with just a linen garment. He's just wearing a white t-shirt. Like, that's, that's it, right? He goes in with nothing recognizing, I need God to make atonement. Okay, that's a sidebar. Verse 24. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place. He shall put on his garments. He'll come out. He'll offer his burnt offering, the burnt offering of the people, make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering, he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his water and afterward come back into the camp. Who's Azazel? Anybody know who Azazel is? Who's that? Now again, if you read earlier, there's a lot of this discussion of Azazel. One goat is killed and his blood, his life force, his resurrection power comes into the presence of God. The other goat, the sins are laid on his head and he is sent to Azazel. Now we all have different translations and this is kind of a peculiar thing in the Bible that it's hard for people to understand. So we just recognize sometimes we come to verses and we're like, we're not real sure about this, right? So some translations just translate Azazel as the scapegoat. Problem with that grammatically, and the reason this translation just says Azazel, they're like, Azazel, who knows? We'll just say the word in Hebrew, right? Other translations try to fix it for us and say, we think that means the scapegoat. Scapegoat. Problem is it's you're sending the goat to the scapegoat, right? So it makes more sense to say you're sending the goat to Azazel, whoever he is. Now, the word in Hebrew basically means like a powerful, mighty one, like a powerful spirit, So most of the early interpreters, the old Jewish interpreters, thought this was some kind of wilderness demon. Uh, So what what would be the best sense we could make of that? They're basically taking the sins of the people, placing it symbolically on the head of the goat, saying we're going to send him out into the wilderness to the devil. We're like, devil, you want sin? You can have the sin. We're giving the sin to you, devil. Wilderness demon, go ahead. You get the sin. Symbolically, you get the sin. The life force of the other goat comes into the presence of God. Again, we have this double atonement that we see in the New Testament. This double atonement, theologians sometimes say double imputation. Double imputation is my sins are placed on Jesus on the cross. And he dies. He pays the price. He, he, he expels that sin. He goes into the underworld. He goes into death with my sin. And the other imputation of double imputation is Jesus's life force is imputed to me. The righteous resurrection power of Jesus is given to me and given to you if you trust in him. And you go in to the presence of God. That's the good news of the gospel. 
My sin's taken away, it's kicked out, and the righteousness of Christ is given to me. Those are the two symbols that we see in the New Testament about Jesus. Same symbol, same story being played out in the Old Testament. So this is the thing I've been saying again and again. We have the same story as the Old Testament, just different staging, different culture. We're not an ancient Middle Eastern culture. We do things differently. We're, we're not as big on sacrificing animals as they were back then, right? Like there's some things that just seem weird and remote to us. But when we dig and try to inhabit the ancient story, we're like, oh, this is, this is the same story. This is a God who comes near to us and makes a way for us to be restored into his presence in Eden. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I grabbed a picture online, a famous painting of the scapegoat. This was painted in 1856, actually painted in Israel by artist William Holman Hunt. He traveled to Israel, was on location there to get a, a vibe of, of what it was like there and went out to the Dead Sea area, the Sodom and Gomorrah area of Israel and tried to get just a picture of that death and decay and then place the scapegoat there. That's the kind of wilderness he was sent out to. And then he placed these two verses, the artist, William Holman Hunt, placed these two verses on the frame of his painting. Leviticus 16.22, The goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhibited, inhabited. That's Leviticus 16.22. And then he also placed Isaiah 53.4 under the painting. It says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Peter picks this up in the New Testament in his letter of 2 Peter. Peter combines Day of Atonement imagery and Isaiah 53, suffering servant imagery, mixes those together and says that's who Jesus was. He was the one who bore our sin, just like this goat that symbolically bore their sin and took it out into the place of death, into the place of the devil. So we want to just pause here and recognize, man, there's a there's a gravity, a, a, a weightiness, a centrality of atonement in the Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament scriptures. It's a thread that runs all the way through the whole Bible. There's a, a need we have. Um, we haven't done what's right. Uh, Romans 3 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us that's perfect. Um, none of us have, have loved others the way we should always love. None of us have always done what's right the way God has told us to do what's right. None of us always have stuck up for the other person or cared for other people the way that we should care for other people. We're all guilty. And when we sin, when we commit acts of selfishness, when we steal, when we curse others, when we take from others, when we commit sexual immorality, uh, when we hurt our neighbors, it's like a pollution that's spreading in the world. And so the entire book of Leviticus is like, man, there's this pollution, right? There are these germs. There's this impurity that's just spreading. There's this death that's spreading. Some of it seems directly tied to sin when you read Leviticus. Others of it, it's just like being human. You're like, well, this, is this really bad, right? No, but it's a symbol of our weakness and our mortality and our death. So there's a whole variety of impurities that you see in the book of Leviticus. Direct sinful bad things and then just gross things, right, that are maybe neutral morally, but they're just gross, and they remind us that we're, we're locked out of Eden. We're not there. And so I think it's really important that we recognize the gravity, the centrality of this, and recognize our need. 
our separation from God. You, you can't be saved unless you know you're not saved. You, you can't recognize that Jesus has come for you unless you think you need Jesus to come for you. And so Jesus would say this in the New Testament. He's like, I haven't, I haven't come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. But in other places, he clarified, no one's healthy. No one's healthy. And so I just want you and myself to just pause and say, man, there's a gravity to this. I need, I need Jesus. I need atonement. I need purity. I need to have my sins covered. I need to have my debt paid. And only God does that. Uh, one of the things that's emphasized as you read through Leviticus, you'll see the language. In some places, it's like, you, human, bring this offering. But in many places throughout the book, you see that God is the one making the offering. God is the one making the way. God is the one opening the door, saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So let's move on to the next point. We see in the next point, the fulfillment of atonement in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of our atonement. So flip over to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll look at verses 11 through 28. We're on page 1006 in the Black Bibles, if you're still following along with those uh, Bibles from under the chairs there. Hebrews chapter 9, that's going to emphasize that now what was uh, repeated and reminded in the Old Testament is completely finished in the New Testament. So there was kind of a, a shadowy projection of it, a hinting at it in the Old Testament. Same story, right? Different culture, same story. And yet it's finished in Christ. And that's the beauty of what we see here in Hebrews 9. So Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 28, the fulfillment of atonement. Starting in verse 15, therefore, he, who, we're talking about Jesus here, he is the mediator of a new covenant. What's a covenant? Uh, it's a serious promise, a contractual arrangement that is made solemn through ritual. So basically a contract, basically a promise, but a little more serious and religious than that, right? So in our culture, we don't have a lot of things still like covenants. Maybe a marriage covenant is the closest thing. It's like serious oaths, kind of a bond in blood till death do us part, that kind of vibe. That's what a covenant means. And so generally the Old Testament has tons of covenants that God has made with humanity. But in Hebrews, he talks especially about the covenant with the Old Testament people in the five books of Moses called the Old Covenant, which is basically the covenant made through Moses with Israel, right? Lots of other covenants, but we're mainly contrasting what Jesus did with what was done for the Old Testament people with all these Levitical laws and everything that was described through Moses in the Old Covenant. Okay, so he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So he switched here language from will and covenant, but it's the same in Greek. So he's doing a play on words, right? He's like, so we know in our world, a will is another type of covenant and it doesn't go into effect until somebody dies. He's like, we've, we've got that here, right? Because Jesus died. And so we've now initiated the new covenant. So he picks up in verse 18. Therefore, 
not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Another echo of that in the New Testament is when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant through communion. He says, this, the blood, this is the new covenant here. He uses the blood of covenant language to get that echo in their ears. Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Again, God repeatedly says there's, there's life force, there's power in the blood, And so the blood is going to take away the pollution. Again, seems strange to us. We're just going to try to be open-minded and listen to how they told their stories in their culture. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Okay, we've got heaven, and then we've got the copy of heaven, which is the tabernacle, the tent, the place where God would come down and reveal himself through all these rituals. Later, it became the permanent place we call the temple. So basically, temple and tabernacle are like the same thing. One is mobile and the other was permanent, heavy stones, bigger, more impressive. But it was like the same arrangement, same furniture, same place where they were telling the story of the gospel through the sacrifices. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, all of that was just like a copy of the presence of God in heaven. It's just like a reflection of the real presence of God. So this is important to follow his logic here. Okay, verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you see that? He's saying, so God gave us this little heaven copy, this little heaven embassy called the tabernacle, the temple, where the priests would go through these rituals to be like, hey, God loves you and he's going to clean up your sin and it's okay and you can come back to him and he's, he's still trying to establish contact with you. He's telling that gospel story through this temple. Author of Hebrews is saying, but there's like the real home of God in heaven and Jesus went there. <laughs> the, the blood of the goat and its resurrection life force was brought into the copy in the temple, in the tabernacle, but the blood of Jesus goes and opens the way into heaven for us, the real place of God. Okay, now I've lost my place. Verse 25, nor was it to offer, okay, verse 24, let's back up. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. So he's making another contrast here. He didn't have to keep doing it year after year, right? Jesus did it once, and then it was finished. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's, it's finished. The work is finished. 
the promise, the checks that were being written are now cashed in the presence of Jesus himself. It's fulfilled. He's done it. It's complete. Now we're just waiting to be with him. But the work is, the work is finished. There's nothing we can add to this work. I grabbed a picture of a cross because I thought just in case you didn't want to look at that cross, you could look at another cross on the screen. And the idea is that we're to associate the finished work of Christ with the empty cross. That's why it's often a symbol in different branches of Christianity. We're saying, Jesus died for me. He was the sacrificial lamb. And again, double imputation, double salvation, a, a, a double atonement, just as is pictured in the two goats. One goat goes out into the realm of the dead, taking away the sin, expiation, right? And the other, through its life force power, comes into the presence of God. So we have in Christ our sins taken away and his resurrection power given to us. It stands in our place. So if you trust in Jesus, God looks at you as, as delightful, as beautiful, as righteous, as holy. That's what he sees in Christ. And that changed position, that changed identity, that changed reality is what begins to change our behavior. Like knowing that we're actually loved, saved, and forgiven. We begin to live in a new way. We forget it. We stumble. We take steps backwards. But then we, again, remember, no, Jesus loves me. He gave himself for me. And we take steps forward again. And so if Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this, the question I have for you and for me is what are the alternative systems of salvation that we often fall back into? Like we drift. And sometimes I can remember so strongly that Jesus has got me. And then like the next week I think, but if I don't get a raise, my life is not going to be okay. Right? Or I think if I don't mend this relationship with this human being over here, my world's going to fall apart. Or if I can't be healed from this chronic pain or this sickness, I will not be able to continue. The author to Hebrews says, no, Jesus has got you. He's enough. There is, there is nothing else. And the warning passages in Hebrews, it's full of them. But chapter 6 and chapter 10, following this section, says don't trample the Son of God under your feet. Don't throw away what he's done for you. But run to him. Trust in him. He is the only way to atone, to make you one with God again, to get you back into Eden. He's the only way to solve your problem. And we talked about this. Chris introduced the song we were singing earlier, the, the fount of joy eternal. Ecclesiastes is clear. God has given you many gifts to make the ride a little easier, right? Like most of you are going to go eat lunch. That's a gift. Thank you, God, for our food. Sunsets, spring weather, if it ever comes, right? All these things. These are gifts that make life easier, Good relationships, good days, happy times, we receive those gifts with joy, but none of them can get us into the presence of God. Only the atonement of Christ. So we receive the gifts. We thank God for the gifts, but we don't trust in the gifts. And Ecclesiastes makes that distinction. Jesus makes that distinction. The author to Hebrews makes that distinction as well. So again, the question is, is there some other fulfillment you're looking to? Or are you looking to Christ and Christ alone to be your only hope? I would encourage you to go through just 
the spiritual evaluation process of naming those things that you drift to, right? Thinking, well, uh, my own personal relational satisfaction, that's what I need. If Jesus tells me that he needs me to get rid of that, well, then I'm getting rid of Jesus, right? Be very careful. The author of Hebrews warns, there's no other salvation outside of pure allegiance to Jesus. When Jesus says, lay that aside and come to me, we have to lay that aside and say, you're, you're my only hope, Jesus. Okay, final point, the origin of atonement. The origin of atonement. We'll just flip over a few pages to 1 John. Little letter of 1 John, not the big gospel of John with the other gospels, but his little short letters, 1, 2, and 3. 1 John, it's on page 1023 in the Black Bibles. 1 John chapter 4, we'll look at verses 7 through 12. The origin of atonement, where, where does it come from? Does atonement come from me or you, or does atonement come from God? Again, I already emphasized this. As you read an overview of all of Leviticus, you'll see that God is saying, I'm, I'm the one providing the way for you, right? Like, yeah, maybe you picked up that lamb and brought him to the temple, to the tabernacle, but I'm the one opening the door to you to come into my presence. So let's read chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So where does love come from? God. Very good. Y'all are good at this. Pop quiz. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you love, you've been born of God. Okay, very good. You're starting to get this origin thing I'm going for here. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, manifest means shown, right? Hard to see love, right? Love is intangible. How do we see it? Here's how we see it. Here's how the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That life force. The life is in the blood. How do we live? Well, it's symbolized in the blood of these ancient rituals in strange ways that we don't fully comprehend in the Old Testament. It's made even more clear in Jesus. We live through him. He goes on and he says in verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So he just said, we're supposed to love him. He's going to say that again. We're supposed to love God. You're supposed to love people. Just to clarify, Jesus said that's the summary of the whole law. Love God, love people. Are you supposed to love God and love people? Yes. But what's the, the essence? What's the origin of all of this? And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a old, archaic English word. We don't use a lot in English. If you're reading another translation, it probably says atonement. That's another translation for it. Atonement. Ransom. And it's hard to translate. And so again, a lot of different translations use different words. It's hard to translate these things. Not because the different translations are less reliable or bad or whatever. It's just these, these words have so much rich meaning. And here's what I'd tell you. It's not a secret of a dictionary that's going to help you to understand your Bible, but it's reading more of your Bible that's going to help you understand your Bible. And so you can connect these dots. The more you read your Bible, the more you understand the context and what the rest of the chapter explains, right? And so it's not some secret of like, oh, this, 
The ESV says propitiation, and that's the answer to everything. Or NIV says atonement, and that solves everything. No, it's the whole chapter explains it for you. But let me give a little background on propitiation. Ancient, archaic, English word, what does it mean? It means to make happy. To make happy. What are they trying to get at there? God made himself happy with you by sending Jesus. Why did he do that? What's the origin of this project that God was engaging in? Did you see it in the text? What's the repeated word? God's love. He loves you. Like, it starts with God. God did it. God loves you. That's, that's the origin. And he's repeated that again and again. So you could have no idea what propitiation means, but you could figure it out from this text, right? And the other translation is atonement. It's a Greek word that's a translation of the Hebrew term for propitiation, for atonement, hilasmas, and Yom Kippur, and all that. We've got all these different words trying to say the same thing of like, we're separated from God, but God wants to be at one with us. There's a price that needs to be paid, and God has paid that ransom. There's an unhappiness that we have with ourselves and with the world and an unhappiness that God has with our sin. God's made himself happy with us in Christ. He delights in you through Jesus. That's the story that these words are telling us. I grabbed a picture of a father hugging a son. A.W. Tozer said that the thing you imagine when you imagine who God is tells you a lot about your theology. And Puritans get upset about this kind of thing because, you know, it's important that we don't um, create a, a vision, a picture of the invisible God. That's part of the Ten Commandments, right? We're not supposed to make an idol. But what does the New Testament say about this? How do we see God? Well, we were just told in this chapter, right? How do you see God? How, how's he been manifested? Anybody know? We, we see him through him sending Jesus into the world. And Jesus even said this in John 14, Right? His disciples were like, we don't know who the Father is. We don't know if he likes us, if he hates us. We're not sure. How do we know who the Father is? Jesus is like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The way that God is manifested in the world is through his Son. The way that we understand his embrace of us, his love of us, is as we look at the story of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is telling us here in 1 John. So atonement, ransom, propitiation, all of this comes, it all originates in the love of a God who's pursuing you and pursuing me, the love of God. And then he tells us what to do with it. Verse 11, he says this in verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or completed in us. So he just said, nobody can see God, but you can see him in the sending of a son. And now he's just said it again. No one can see God, but if we love one another, people will see God. So if your friends and your own heart is just aching with God's absence, there are two ways to solve that. One is to look to Jesus. If you don't know who God is and you haven't seen God in this world, look to the story of Jesus. Galatians uses the word video. It's visually portrayed how in the proclamation of the story of Jesus. We see God by hearing about Jesus. Look to Jesus. And then he adds this bonus and love each other. 
Like if we would love each other, people would see God. People see God when we see Jesus and when people see us loving each other. That's how, it's that simple, right? That we would believe the origin of God's love for us. We would believe the story. We would believe all these crazy rituals telling the same story that God loves you. He wants to be one with you. And he's providing the way. He's opening the door. So we should come to him. So we'll wrap up here. We, we looked at the gravity of atonement. It's, it's the center of the Old Testament. The center chapter of the center book of the foundational books of our Old Testament. We need atonement. We need to be made one. We got again. We looked at the fulfillment of atonement, fulfilled in Jesus. Instead of a priest, you know, doing the symbolic stuff once a year with the blood of, of goats and bulls, it's the Son of God himself with his own blood coming into the real presence of God in heaven, the fulfillment of atonement. And then finally, the origin of atonement. It doesn't start with your love for God. This is, this is love. Not, not that you love God, it's that he loved you right? We're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's works. What does that result in? Well, then we start to do good things. We're not saved by our love for God. We're saved by his love for us. And what is the result of that? We start to love each other. People start to see God. That's the origin of atonement. Um, Last week, I had the great joy of getting to hang out with some of my adult kids. And one of the fun things you get to do as a older grandparent parent is buy meals for your kids, right? I can't really tell them what to do anymore, right? Like, I got to be careful how often I give them advice. I got to wait until they ask for advice, right? Like, I'm trying to let them be their own people, but I can still buy meals for them. It's a lot of fun. And so at the beginning, I was talking about how, you know, atonement, one of the good translations for atonement is, is covering someone's meal. Someone shows up, they don't have any money. And if someone shows up all the time without money, you, see, you start doing, you're like, hmm, there's a problem here, Right? But like when it's, when it's my kids, number one, they show up, they, they offer to pay. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's my joy. I, I want to pay for you. Like this, this is all I've got left, right? Let me buy you a meal. And I want you to know that's the posture of our Heavenly Father. He delights to bring you close. He delights to set a feast for you. The, the one feast in all of Leviticus 23, where we're told to fast, is the one where God sets the table for the eternal feast. He says, come to me, come feast with me. I will make a way for you to come and be with me and, and me with you. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you delight to celebrate with us, to feast with us. And you've set that feast at the cost of your own life. We pray that we would be changed by it. God, we give all glory to you, the one that loved us first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.